0: I'd like you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, and I want to read verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> Remember those who rule over you, who have spook, spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever forever. Do not be carried about with various strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we look into it, that uh, the responses of our heart would not be to man, but to you. We pray that uh, you would anoint my lips, uh, feeble as they are, and enable me to clearly Bring your word and apply it into the lives of this your congregation. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> in about 25 minutes to half an hour, we're going to be ordaining Larry Nolte as a deacon and Gary Duff as a ruling elder in this congregation. And this has been a long time in coming, and I, for one, in celebrating. And I hope some of you can celebrate with us at our house afterwards. But even if you're not able to come to that, uh, do congratulate them after the worship service is finished. Now, according to our Book of Church order, uh, during these ordination services, we need to address a charge to the congregation and a charge to the officers as well. And the reason we need a charge to the congregation is because it's not just officers who have responsibilities within the Church of Jesus Christ, Uh, the membership covenant that each of you took had quite a number, in the footnotes, quite a number of one another passages. Exhort one another, encourage one another, love one another. In fact, the word love really could summarize all of the one another passages that were in there. And so, my charge to the congregation this morning is to love one another, but especially we're going to be looking in this passage at loving your leaders. Loving your leaders. If you look at verse 1, which we did not read, it begins the topic of love and says, let brotherly love continue. Now, that implies, as uh, Elder Swab preached about earlier, that if you're regenerate, if you really have got God's grace within your heart, brotherly love has started. It's going to be there at some point, but here he's saying let brotherly love continue. Continue Because he realizes there are so many different things that can choke out uh, that love. Now, he describes some of the uh, very practical ways in which love is manifested. And uh, you could think of this as love wearing work clothes. There's a large wardrobe of work clothes that love expresses itself in. Uh, for example, if you look at verse 1, it talks about hospitality, hospitality is one of the ways in which we let brotherly love continue. And what an incredible thing it would be if every man, woman, and child, not just in this church, but all the churches of the world, were given over to hospitality. I think it would revolutionize the impact that the church would have. Then he applies this brotherly love to mercy ministries in verse 3. And uh, you, you can read in early church history... Uh, Henry Chadwick, uh, one of my favorite historians, he said that in the first four centuries of the church, it was just an explosive growth of the church, and he says probably the most important single factor for that growth from a human perspective was the incredible love and mercy ministries that they saw, not just amongst uh, believers, that blew them over, see how they love one another, was one of the comments of the pagans, but the love that they displayed to those outside the church as well. Then he applies brotherly love to marriage in verse 4. And not just uh, outside the family, but he says, let brotherly love continue within the family. And then he applies it to finances and possessions and how we share these possessions with one another in verses 5 and 6. And then he applies it in verses 7 through 18, uh, through verse 19 actually, uh, to the various expressions of this love within the church of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to look at all of those uh, different admonitions that he gives. I'm just going to focus on those that uh, fulfill what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, brethren, love your leaders. Love your leaders. The first thing that is said in this section, in verse 7, <clears throat> is that love follows those who are leaders. Verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Over and over again in the Scripture, one of the patterns that God has established between leaders and the members of the church is that the members follow the leaders. They imitate. Uh, They do the things that the leaders do. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Paul says, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Uh, we don't elect um, deacons so that they can do all of the work of mercy ministries. We elect deacons so that they can stir up the church to do the work of mercy ministries. We don't uh, elect elders so that they can do all of the work of, uh, of um, ministry within the church. Instead, Ephesians says that those are given to the church to equip who? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry so he says yes they're involved in ministry but what is the point of their being involved in ministry it's to lead others into those same uh, ministry opportunities and so first corinthians four sixteen says therefore i urge you imitate me first thessalonians 3 7 for you yourselves know <clears throat> how you ought to follow our example Now, verses 8 through 9 indicate that love also rejoices in the truth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied uh, with them. Uh, I've had people say, you know, forget about doctrinal differences. Doctrine divides, love unites. But I think you guys are mature enough to recognize that a love that is not defined by the Bible is not a biblical love. And how does the Bible define love? The greatest chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, says love rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. Now, there may come times where you really don't want to hear the truth from the elders' lips Uh, because it may not be something that is comfortable for you, but what brotherly love is going to do is it's going to make you resist that urge to dismiss uh, those leaders from your lives and to listen. Because why? Brotherly love rejoices in the truth. It wants that which will bond the church together and bond us closer to the Lord. Now, verses 8-9, through he points out that love does not have itching ears. Love for controversy. And uh, something new, love rejoices in the truth. And uh, it is a great expression of love when your soul is anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, not always looking for something new, you know, new winds of doctrine, as Ephesians words it, that's verse 9 here, and so that you're established in grace, not preoccupied with non-essentials, verse 10. Third, 1 Corinthians 13 says that love endures all things, or love is Long-suffering. It suffers long. And there was a lot of suffering that these early believers went through. I think verses 10 through 14 makes that clear. Now, let me clarify here. I am not saying that uh, your relationship to Gary and to uh, Larry is going to be one of suffering and great endurance. Uh, No, far from it. The endurance that they had to do was from people outside the church. It was unbelievers who were persecuting them <clears throat> but the point that I want to draw out here is that Christianity is not always a bed of roses. You know, and when I was growing up, there were all these bumper stickers that said um, about Christianity, try it, you'll like it, and, and uh, you know, if you believe in Jesus, everything's just going to go hunky-dory. And uh, it doesn't. there's lots of issues, there's lots of problems, it's not a bed of roses, and we don't quit loving our leaders just because our lives have become difficult. The moment you come to Christ, you've got conflict because you've already inherited a new enemy. In fact, Genesis 3, that's one of the first things God does. He says, I will put enmity between the woman and, and the devil and his seed. That's a sign of grace. God puts enmity. Before, they were not at enmity with Satan. They were children of the devil. Why? Because they'd given their hearts over to that. But grace puts enmity, and so you've got Satan, who's the great enemy, and he's going to do everything he can to make you ineffective, and one of his greatest strategies is to attack this brotherly love. He will try to drive a wedge between you and the brethren. He will try to drive a wedge between you and your leaders, between... Uh, husbands and wives, children and parents, between you and Christ. And if he can attack this brotherly love, he will have made great inroads against your uh, defenses. And this passage admonishes us to have such a love commitment to Christ and the church, we are willing to identify with Christ even when it is not convenient. Now in verses 10 through 11, he lays down a theological reason why Jesus had to suffer outside Jerusalem instead of suffering within the temple, like you might expect, and uh, we won't get into that. I just want to draw one implication from verse 13, <clears throat> therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Christ received a lot of slander, and he's saying his followers ought to gladly bear that reproach, the reproach of that slander themselves, rather than distancing themselves from it. They received a lot of persecution, and their temptation was to leave the church and say, we don't like this persecution. Can't we have one foot in each camp? Can't we uh, just um, do away with the, the, the difficulty of standing with the church and still be considered part of the church? And he said, no, it doesn't work that way. This epistle calls them to love Christ in such a way that their love for the brethren is manifested. You cannot separate the two, the two. And so, it's a call for a love for the church that endures, that's willing to put up with slander. And on verses 15 through 16, we see that biblical love sacrifices and does not seek its own. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, by him... Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. This is the first sacrifice that is made, and this is the one really that orients every other sacrifice, that orients our lives. It is how we worship God, and it's called a sacrifice. It's called a sacrifice because it's hard to make. It's not something that necessarily comes easy. Um, sometimes, worship is no more... Uh, easy or attractive to us than it was in the old testament when a person had to slip the throat of a bull and cut it all up and sacrifice it was a lot of work that was involved in it and it wasn't always the most pleasant work the point of calling it a sacrifice is that this is not for what we can get out of it this is for what we can give to god worship is about pleasing the lord about serving Him, bringing delight and satisfaction to the Lord. So He says, as you're orienting your whole life around worship, you're orienting it around sacrifice. Uh, worship time's not the time to do, you know, a sermon critique or be a music critic or an elder critic. It's a time to say, Lord, I want to give myself unreservedly to You. I want to follow You. Now this leads then into other kinds of sacrifices which the second part of verse 16 talks about. Now, this is what worship has shaped us for. He says, but do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So, think of very practical, tangible ways in which you can sacrificially love the brethren, sacrificially uh, love your leaders. Fifth, Verse 17 indicates that love is not too proud to submit or to obey. It begins with the words, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Now, if we only had to submit when we felt like submitting, there wouldn't be any need for this command, would there? He has to command them because it doesn't uh, come naturally. And even though in this church we believe that the only commands that the church ought to give are commands that the Scripture clearly gives... In other words, we have no authority but the authority of the Word. As the Puritans said, the only voice speaking in the church should be the voice of Christ speaking through the Scriptures. Even though that is true, and you know we're committed to giving you biblical commands, our hearts are so creative at getting around the clear testimony of the Scripture when we're not comfortable with it. And uh, it can be a difficult thing. It makes these unpopular words. But they are biblical words, and they are words that were given for your joy and for your health. The world thinks that obedience and submission are stifling. Now, these words are not consistent with love. That's one of the reasons why they're taken out of so many wedding vows. Uh, But in the Bible, submission and obedience is always qualified by being in the Lord, according to the Scripture. And what is the Scripture? It's the perfect law of liberty. And so, when the elders are applying corrections into your life, the reason they're applying these corrections is because they want you to enter into that liberty. They want you to enter into that joy and into that love that God has called for you. And I've used the illustration in the past of the freedom that a railroad uh, you know, car has when it is restricted to the tracks that God has made for it. Uh, when Union Pacific uh, cars want to get derailed, they lose power. They use, lose usefulness. But when they restrict themselves to the tracks for which they are made, they have power, they have freedom, they have, you could say, metaphorically, they have joy. The only time a fish is free is when it restricts itself to the water for which it was made. As soon as it goes up onto the dry land, it loses all freedom. And it's the same for believers. The only time we have The liberty is when we submit ourselves to the perfect law of liberty. That's what God created us for. That's what gives maximum liberty, maximum joy, and maximum health in our lives. Now, God implements those laws through a kingdom, and through officers in that kingdom, we call them deacons and elders, or they're sometimes called rulers as here, or overseers. But when those officers see you wanting to get derailed... Because there's a momentary thrill of being derailed and they're wanting to get you back on the tracks. What this is saying is, obey them, submit to them. Their desire is for your joy. And he says, if you don't, you're going to make life miserable for these officers. If you keep reading, he says, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So he's saying... True brotherly love does not thumb its nose at authority. It is a willing to love them enough to honor, respect, and obey them. Now finally, verses 18 through 19 show how love prayerfully hopes all things. I know that You guys realize, have realized long ago that Rodney and I and Gary and Larry are not perfect. And if any of you had the illusions that we were perfect, you could just ask our wives and they would disabuse you of that. They would say, yeah, there's no way they're perfect. And that is precisely why we need your prayers just like those first century officers needed uh, the prayers of the people back then. These verses say, pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. And that's what I urge you to do with these officers. Pray for us. Pray for them. Do not expect perfection from them. Don't expect them to be doing all of the work of the ministry. Get alongside of them and encourage them in the ministry. So have an action-oriented love that imitates what is good. Verse 7 rejoices in the truth, verses 8 through 9, endures all things, verses 10 through 14, sacrifices and does not seek its own, verses 15 through 16, is not too proud to obey, verse 17, and that has great expectations of what God can do through this church and through uh, the deacons and the elders of this church, verses 18 through 19. So, congregation, I urge you, love one another, And love your leaders. And now comes my charge to the officers. Brethren, Gary, Larry, me, (laughs) Rodney, care for your people. Have a passion for ministry. Love your sheep. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 9 uh, for this uh, particular admonition. And while you're turning there, let me tell you a story. One of the professors at a nursing school gave a pop quiz, and at the end of the quiz, the last question was this, what is the name of the woman who cleans the school? Now, the students thought, this is just not fair. Uh, most of them had no idea what they were, and one of the ladies asked, is this going to count against our final grade? And the teacher said, yes, it is going to count. You're going to meet a lot of people when you get out in this field you may be tempted to treat them as diseases instead of as people. But each one is important. Each one has a name. And by the way, her name is Dorothy. Now, while I will not claim that Jesus knew the name of every person that he ministered to, we're not told, obviously, as to his uh, divine nature he did, but as to his humanity, who knows, we're not told in the Scripture. But I can assure you from the Scriptures that he cared for the people that he ministered to. And uh, whether you're thinking about your ministry inside the church or outside the church to the elders and to the deacon, I admonish you to remember the story of Dorothy. It's very easy for us to become numbed after a while with the amount of work and the number of people that we deal with, especially when we're dealing outside the church. Larry and I have had a lot of talks about this. We can get used and abused so many times that we can become cynical and we can just begin to just view these things as statistics. Well, you can have this passion for ministry, this caring for people like Jesus did, if you look at seven contexts in His life. And the first one is in verse 36, right at the beginning there. <clears throat> it says, But when He saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion for them. When He saw... The multitudes. God is going to give each one of you unique burdens. He's given you already unique giftings and unique ministries that you're probably going to specialize in But those burdens that God places within our hearts usually do not come in the abstract, you know, when you're just sitting in a living room uh, reading a newspaper. Usually they come when we're out there where the people are, when we're looking around at the needs that God has providentially uh, placed into our lives. That's where He stirs up our passion. It says, when He saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion for them. So, spend time with your people. There are all kinds of needs God will present before you. Look for God's hand in that. A second way to develop passion for ministry is to have a willingness to feel. Verse 36 says, He was moved with compassion for them. Now, compassion is a very interesting word. The Greeks were a lot more graphic and a little less delicate than we are. But the word for compassion is intestines. And uh, you probably know exactly what they are talking about when you've seen something that maybe a guy's gotten beaten up or you've seen somebody else hurt ooh, you just feel your innards churning and whenever needs are presented to us they will stir up emotions within us and there's only two ways that you can resolve those feelings the first way is an ungodly way it's stuffing the feelings I don't like what that feels like and you just stuff it you try to get rid of it here's how first john refers to that stuffing of the feelings. And I'm going to use the King James because it, it literally translates this Greek word splunk But whoso hath this world's goods and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? He's saying you're trying to stuff your emotion. You're shutting off those feelings. You're closing them off. By not exposing yourself to the broken marriages, uh, to the, the, the conflicts that are over here, and, and all of the problems and the sins that people face. But when you do that, sure, you don't feel bad anymore, but you're losing out on the incredible joy of having a ministry empowered by God's Spirit. Here's the other way that you can resolve those emotions Resolve those emotions by allowing them to motivate you into ministry. Be willing to feel pain and sorrow and, yes, even anger. Be willing to feel pity and sympathy and agony and all of the other emotions that are part of real ministry. When you do that, you're going to begin to care for people. You're going to begin to have those passions stirred up within you just like they were within Jesus. And so my second charge to the officers is to have a willingness to feel. The third point that Jesus models before sending out the disciples in chapter 10 is a willingness to be optimistic about the advancement of the church. Verse 37 says, Then He said to His disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. When you think about it, that's a real statement of faith. They haven't even started very much yet. But he's saying, this harvest field is so big, we don't have nearly enough workers with what we've got here. We've got to continue multiplying these workers. It's a statement of faith of what God is going to do out there in the world. Omaha has needs that far outpace the number of laborers that we have. We've got to have every warm body that we can uh, to serve the needs that God has given to us. Are you willing to be optimistic about the harvest? Now, some people think we're being overly optimistic when we speak about having preaching points already. We're pretty stretched, but having other preaching points, you know, in this one and a half hour radius, is that really realistic? But I think if we do not have faith of what God can do, including other officers coming in, we're not going to get beyond ministering outside the four walls uh, that are here. And so if you're to have the mind of Christ, be wildly optimistic about the harvest that God intends for this congregation to pull in. We serve a great God. And we need to have a great faith in His greatness and a great faith in the greatness of the Great Commission. And as officers, we're leading in the casting of that kind of faith. I think there is no reason why we could not have four preaching points in the next five years, if God so wills. Obviously, we can't push any faster than God allows, but let's have faith, let's have a vision of what God could do. A fourth step that we must take in order to develop a passion for ministry is to have a willingness to pray. It's not by accident that the call to prayer in verse 38 precedes the sending of them out in chapter 10. He says, pray for laborers, they start praying, God sends them out, okay? I don't think that's by accident. And so, verse 38, he says, Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. And their prayer leads to their commission. It is on our knees that the Holy Spirit stirs up a passion within us, that He empowers us. Uh, And it's through the Holy Spirit that those burdens that make a difference uh, begin to happen. So, officers... Are you willing to be men of prayer? Are you willing to be on your knees? We need to commit ourselves to being praying people. A willingness to pray is a prelude to passion. But as soon as you get this passion, you begin to realize you're driven right back to prayer again. Prayer is so important. Now, prayer without action grieves God. And so the fifth point is a willingness to labor. And verse 38 says, send out laborers. Send out laborers. Jesus went out to labor himself and he was not willing to command others to do what he was not willing to get his hands dirty in, but he did not labor alone. He sent out other laborers. So again, don't think that Larry is the only one who's going to be doing uh, mercy ministries or administrations or help. Get alongside of him. It's an awesome thing when churches really lay hold of labor themselves and they begin to develop the passion that Christ had. A willingness to get our hands dirty, a willingness to labor is a prerequisite. And so my admonition to the officers: be willing to labor and be willing to involve others in labor. Uh, It's very easy for either Gary or Larry to just begin to say, you know, it's a whole lot easier if I just do the work myself. Right, Mike? It's it's much easier to do the work yourself than to involve others in the labor. So both of those are important. A sixth step, we can take is to have a willingness to go where the needs are rather than waiting for them to come to us in verse 38 again send out laborers into his harvest where was it that jesus began to be moved with compassion it was when he was out there ministering it was in the context of being with those people that god began to move him with this compassion Well, that's exactly the way it is with us as well Uh, It is when we get out there with the people that God has assigned to us that God begins to stir up within us this passion for ministry. It's in the harvest. And so go out to the members that have been assigned to you. We need to go out to a needy world. Then finally, point seven, we need to have a willingness to follow Christ's lead and to have others imitate us in this passion for people. Verses 36 through 38 are kind of sandwiched between verse 35 and chapter 10 obviously but verse 35 says Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people it's after seeing Jesus do that that he goes out I mean they go out in chapter 10 and they begin to do exactly the same thing it's after following a man of passion that they go out as men of passion and then others begin to follow them as men of passion And that's the pattern Paul gives. He says, "...the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. So we follow Christ so that others will follow Christ. We catch the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ so that others will catch the passion of Christ from us. Now, I think all of us are intellectually committed to ministry. We don't always have that passion but I think we can begin to develop this kind of a passion in our ministry if we're willing to put ourselves in the path of His blessing by being willing to look, willing to feel, willing to be optimistic, willing to pray, willing to labor in the tasks of the church, willing to go where the needs are found, and then finally, willing to follow Christ's lead in in discipleship. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that our church would become more and more conformed to the pattern that You have set in Your Word, that it would be our delight uh, to follow and our delight to lead, that You would uh, give to us uh, the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, thinking of the needs of others as more important than our own, but that You would also feed us with that bread of heaven, feed us with that joy that sustained Christ. And You have said, the joy of the Lord is Your strength. May this Your people be strengthened Uh, with the joy that flows from your throne. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.